Chapter 4 of the AEF with General Pershing and the American Forces. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The AEF with General Pershing and the American Forces by Haywood Brown. Chapter 4 the Franco-American Honeymoon. The day after the Americans marched in Paris, one of the French newspapers referred to the doughboys as Roman Caesars clad in khaki. The city set itself to liking the soldiers in everything American and succeeded admirably. Even the taxicab drivers refrained from overcharging Americans very much. Schoolchildren studied the history of America and the Star-Spangled Banner. There were pictures of President Wilson and General Pershing in many shops, and some had framed translations of the President's message to Congress. In fact, so eager were the French to take America to their hearts that they even made desperate efforts to acquire a working knowledge of baseball. Excelsior, an illustrated French daily, carried an action picture taken during a game played between American ambulance drivers just outside of Paris. The picture was entitled, A Player Goes to Catch the Ball, Which Has Been Missed by the Catcher, and underneath ran the following explanation. We have given in our number of yesterday the rules of baseball, the American national game, of which a game, which is perhaps the first ever played in France, took place yesterday at Colombe between the soldiers of the American ambulances. Here is an aspect of the game. The pitcher, or thrower of balls, whom one sees in the distance, has sent the ball. The catcher, or attrapeur, who should re-strike the ball with his wooden club, has missed it, and a player placed behind him has seized it in its flight. The next day, L'Intransigeant undertook the even more hazardous task of explaining American baseball slang. During the parade on the 4th of July, some Americans had greeted the doughboys with shouts of, Attaboy. A French journalist heard and was puzzled. He returned to his office and looked in English dictionaries and various works of reference without enlightenment. Several English friends were unable to help him, and an American who had lived in Paris for thirty years was equally at sea. But the reporter worked it all out by himself, and the next day he wrote, Parisians have been puzzled by the phrase, attaboy, which Americans are prone to employ in moments of stress or emotion. The phrase is undoubtedly a contraction of, at her boy, and may be closely approximated by, au travail garçon. The writer followed with a brief history of the friendly relations of France and America and paid a glowing tribute to the memory of Lafayette. The name for the American soldiers gave the French press and public no end of trouble. They began enthusiastically enough by calling them the Teddies, but General Pershing, when interviewed one day, said that he did not think this name quite fitting as it had no national significance. The French then followed the suggestion of one of the American correspondents and began to call the soldiers Sammies, or as the French pronounce it, Samis. 
Although this name received much attention in French and American newspapers, it has never caught the fancy of the soldiers in the American Expeditionary Army. Officers and men cordially despise it, and no soldier ever refers to himself or a comrade as a Sammy. American officers have not been unmindful of the usefulness of a name for our soldiers. Major General Siebert, who commanded the 1st Division when it arrived in France, posted a notice at headquarters which read, The English soldier is called Tommy. The French soldier is called Poilu. The commanding general would like suggestions for a name for the American soldier. At the end of the week, the following names had been written in answer to the general's request. Yank, Yankee, Johnny, Johnny Yank, Bronco, Nephew, Gringo, Liberty Boy, Doughboy. Now, Doughboy is a name which the soldiers use, but strictly speaking, it refers only to an infantryman. The origin of the name is shrouded in mystery. One officer, probably an infantryman, has written that the infantrymen are called Doughboys because they are the flower of the army. Another story has it that during some maneuvers in Texas, an artilleryman, comfortably perched on a gun, saw a soldier hiking by in the thick, sticky Texas mud. The mud was up to the shoe tops of the infantryman, and the upper part which had dried looked almost white. Say, shouted the artilleryman, what have you been doing? Walking in dough? And so the men who march have been doughboys ever since. Paris did not let the lack of a name come between her and the soldiers. The theaters gave the Americans almost as much recognition as the press. No musical show was complete without an American finale, and each soubrette learned a little English, I give you keys, or something like that, to please the doughboys. The vaudeville shows, such as those provided at the, the Olympia or the Alhambra, gave an even greater proportion of English speech. The Alhambra was filled with Tommies and doughboys on the night I went. Now and again the comedians had lapses of language and the Americans were forced to let jokes go zipping by without response. It was a pity, too, for they were good jokes, even if French. Presently, however, a fat comedian fell off a ladder and laughter became general and international. The show was more richly endowed with actresses than actors. The management was careful to state that all the male performers had fulfilled their military obligations. Thus, under the picture of Maurice Chevalier, a clever comedian and dancer, one read that Monsieur Chevalier was wounded at the Battle of Coutry, when a bullet passed between his lungs. The story added that he was captured by the Germans and held prisoner for 26 months before he escaped. It did not seem surprising, therefore, that Chevalier should be the gayest of funny men. Twenty-six months of imprisonment would work wonders with ever so many comedians back home. And yet we Americans missed the old patter until there came a breath from across the sea. A low comedian came out and said to his partner in perfectly good English, Well, did you like the show? His partner said he didn't like the show. Well, did you notice the trained seals? persisted the low comedian, and the lower comedian answered, No, the wind was against him. Laughter long delayed overcame us then, but it was mingled with tears. We felt that we were home again. The French are a wonderful people and all that, of course, 
but they're so darn far away. Later there was a man who imitated Eddie Foy imperfectly and a bad bicycle act in which the performers called the orchestra leader Professor and shouted Ready to each other just before missing each trick. This bucked the Americans up so much that a lapse into French with Suzanne Valroger dans son repertoire failed to annoy anybody very much. The Doughboys didn't care whether she came back with her repertoire or on it. Some Japanese acrobats and a Swedish contortionist completed the performance. There are two such international music halls in Paris, as well as a musical comedy of a sort called The Good Luck Girl. The feature of this performance is an act in which a young lady swings over the audience and invites the soldiers to capture the shoe dangling from her right foot. The shoe is supposed to be very lucky and soldiers try hard to get it, standing up in their seats and snatching as the girl swings by. An American sergeant was the winner the night I went to the show, for he climbed upon a comrade's shoulder and had the slipper off before the girl had time to swing out very far. Later, when he went to the trenches, the sergeant took the shoe with him, and he says that up to date he has no reason to doubt the value of the charm. The most elaborate spectacle inspired by the coming of the Americans was at the Folie Bergère, which sent its chorus out for the final number all spangled with stars. The leader of the chorus was an enormous woman, at least six feet tall, who carried an immense American flag. She almost took the head off a Canadian one night as he dozed in a stage box and failed to notice the violent manner in which the big flag was being swung. He awoke just in time to dodge, and then he shook an accusing finger at the Amazon. Why aren't you in khaki, he said. Restaurants as well as theaters were liberally sprinkled with men in the American uniform. The enlisted men ate for the most part in French barracks and seemed to fare well enough although one doughboy, after being served with spinach as a separate course, complained, I do wish they'd get all the stuff on the table at once like we do in the army. I don't want to be surprised. I want to be fed. A young first lieutenant was scornful of French claims to master cookery. Why, they don't know how to fry eggs, he said. I've asked for fried eggs again and again, and do you know what they do? They put them in a little dish and bake them. Yet, barring this curious and barbarous custom in the cooking of eggs, the French chefs were able to charm the palates of Americans even in a year which bristled with food restrictions. There were two meatless days a week, sugar was issued in rations of a pound a month per person, and bread was gray and gritty. The French were always able to get around these handicaps. The food director, for instance, called the ice cream makers together and ordered them to cease making their product in order to save sugar. We have been using a substitute for sugar for seven months, replied the merchants. Well then, said the food director, it will save eggs. We have hit upon a method which makes eggs unnecessary, replied the ice cream makers. At any rate, persisted the food director, my order will save unnecessary consumption of milk. We use a substitute for that, too, the confectioners answered, and they were allowed to go on with their trade. The cooks are even more ingenious than the confectioners. As long as they have the materials with which to compound sauces, meat makes little difference. 
War bread might be terrapin itself after a French chef has softened and sabled it with thick black dressing. Americans found that the French took food much more seriously than we do in America. Patrons always received the carte du jour carefully before making a selection. It was not enough to get something which would do. The meal would fall something short of success if the diner did not succeed in getting what he wanted most. No waiter ever hurried a soldier who was engaged in the task of composing a dinner. He might be a man who was going back to the trenches the next day, and in such a case this last good meal would not be a matter to be entered upon lightly. After all, if it is a last dinner, a man wants to consider carefully whether he shall order contrefilet à la bourguignon or poulet roti à l'espagnol. Whatever may be his demeanor while engaged in the business of making war or ordering a meal, the Frenchman makes his permission a real vacation. He, makes a, he talks a good deal of shop. The man at the next table is telling of a German air raid, only, naturally, he calls them bush. A prison camp, he explains, was brilliantly illuminated so that the Bush prisoners might not escape under the cover of darkness. One night, the enemy aviators came over that way and mistook the prison camp for a railroad station. They dropped a number of bombs and killed ten of their comrades. Everybody at the soldiers' table regarded this as a good joke, more particularly as the narrator vivified the incident by rolling his war bread into pellets and bombarding the table by way of illustration, accompanied by loud cries of plop, plop. Practically every man on permission in Paris is making love to someone, and usually in an open carriage or at the center table of a large restaurant. Nobody even turns around to look if a soldier walks along a street with his arm about a girl's waist. American officers, however, frowned on such exhibitions of demonstrativeness by doughboys, and in one provincial town a colonel issued an order, American soldiers will not place their arms around the waists of young ladies while walking in any of the principal thoroughfares of this town. Still, it was not possible to regulate romance entirely out of existence. There was a girl used to pass my car every morning, said a sergeant chauffeur, and she was so good-looking that I got a man to teach me bonjour, and I used to smile at her and say that when she went by and she'd say bonjour and smile back. One morning I got an apple and I handed it to her and said, Pour vous, like I'd been taught. She took it and came right back with, Oh, I'm ever so much obliged. And there, like a chump, I'd been holding myself down to bonjour for two weeks. There could be no question of the devotion of Paris to the American army. Indeed, so rampant was affection that it was occasionally embarrassing. One officer slipped in a lighting from the elevator of his hotel and sprained his ankle rather badly. He was hobbling down one of the boulevards that afternoon with the aid of a cane when a large automobile dashed up to the curb and an elderly French lady who was the sole occupant beckoned to him and cried, Premier blessé. The officer hesitated and a man who was passing stepped up and said, May I interpret for you? The officer said he would be much obliged. The volunteer interpreter talked to the old lady for a moment, and then he turned and explained, Madame is desirous of taking you in her car wherever you want to go, because she says she is anxious to do something for the first American soldier wounded on the soil of France. 
The devotion of Paris was so obvious that it appalled on one or two who grew fickle. I saw a doughboy sitting in front of the Café de la Pex one bright afternoon. He was drinking champagne of a sort and smoking a large cigar. The sun shone on one of the liveliest streets of a still gay Paris. It was a street made brave with bright uniforms. Brighter eyes of obvious non-combatants gazed at him with admiration. I was sitting at the next table and I leaned over and asked, How do you like Paris? He let the smoke roll hit lazily out of his mouth and shook his head. I wish I was back in El Paso, he said. I found another soldier who was longing for Terre Haute. Him I came upon in the lounging room of a music hall called the Olympia. Two palpably pink ladies sat at the bar drinking cognac. From his table a few feet away, the American soldier looked at them with high disfavor. Surprise, horror, and indignation swept across his face in three waves as the one called Julie began to puff a cigarette before giving a light to Margot. He looked away at last when he could stand no more, and recognizing me as a fellow countryman, he began his protest. I don't like this Paris, he said. I'm in the medical corps, he continued. My home's in Terre Haute. In Indiana, you know. I worked in a drugstore there before I joined the army. I had charge of the biggest soda fountain in town. We used to have as many as three men working there in summer sometimes. Right at a good business corner, you know. I suppose we had almost as many men customers as ladies. Why don't you like Paris? I interrupted. Well, it's like this, he answered. Nobody can say I'm narrow. I believe in people having a good time, but and he leaned nearer confidentially. I don't like this Bohemia. I'd heard about it, of course, but I didn't know it was so bad. You see that girl there, the one in the blue dress smoking a cigarette, sitting right up to the bar? Well, you may believe it or not, but when I first sat down, she came right over here and said, Hello, American. You nice boy. I nice girl. You buy me a drink. I never saw her before in my life, you understand and I didn't even look at her till she spoke to me. I told her to go away or I'd call a policeman and have her arrested. I've been in Paris a week now, but I don't think I'll ever get used to this bohemia business. It's too effusive, that's what I call it. I'd just like to see them try to get away with some of that business in Terre Haute. Some of the visiting soldiers took more kindly to Paris as witnessed the plaint of a middle-aged Franco-American in the employ of the YMCA. I'm a guide for the Young Men's Christian Association here in Paris, he said, but I'm a little bit afraid I'm going to lose my job. They make up parties of soldiers at the YMCA headquarters every day and turn them over to me to show around the city. Well, Monday I started out with twelve and came back with five, and today I finished up with three out of eight. I can't help it. I've got no authority over them, and if they want to leave the party, what can I do? but it makes trouble for me at headquarters. Now, today, for instance, I took them first of all to the Place Vendôme. Mm. There were seven infantrymen and an artilleryman. They seemed to be interested in the column when I told them that it was made out of cannon captured by Napoleon. They wanted to know how many cannon it took and what caliber they were and all that. Everything went all right until we started for the Madeleine. We passed a cafe on the way and one of the soldiers asked, What's this vin I see around on shops? 
I told him it was the French word for wine and that it was pronounced almost like our word van, only a bit more nasal. They all looked at the sign then, and another soldier said, I suppose that beer there is beers, isn't it? I told him that it was, and another guessed that brun ou blonde must mean dark or light. When I said that it did, he wanted to know if he couldn't stop and have one. I told him that I couldn't wait for him, as the whole trip was on a schedule and we had to be at the Madeleine at three o'clock. Well, he said, I guess it'll be there tomorrow, and he went into the cafe. Another soldier said, save a blonde for me, and followed him, and that was too gone. After I had showed the rest the Madeleine, I told them that I was going to take them to Saint-Augustin. The artilleryman wanted to know if that was another church. I said it was, and he said he guessed he'd had enough for a day. I tried to interest him in the paintings in the chapel by Bouguereau and Brisset, but he said he wasn't used to walking so much anyway. He was no doughboy, he said, and he left us. We lost another fellow at Maxim's, and the fifth one disappeared in broad daylight on the Boulevard Malzerbe. He can count up to twenty in French, and he knows how to say, Où est l'hôtel Saint-Anne, which is army headquarters, so I guess he's all right, but I haven't an idea in the world what became of him. The high tide in the American conquest of Paris came one afternoon in July. I got out of a taxi cab in front of the American headquarters in the Rue Constantine and found that a big crowd had gathered in the Esplanade des Invalides. Now and again the crowd would give around to make room for an American soldier running at top speed. One of them stood almost at the entrance of the courtyard of Invalides. His back was turned toward the tomb of Napoleon and he was knocking out flies in the direction of the Seine. Unfortunately, it was a bit far to the river, and no baseball has yet been knocked into that stream. It was a new experience for Napoleon, though. He has heard rifles and machine guns and other loud reports in the streets of Paris, but for the first time there came to his ears the loud, sharp crack of a bat swung against a baseball. Since he could not see from out the tomb, the noise may have worried the emperor. Perhaps he thought it was the British winning new battles on other cricket fields. But again, he might not worry about that now. He might hop up on one toe as a French caricaturist pictured him and cry, Vive l'Angleterre. Mm. One of the men in the crowd which watched the batting practice was a French soldier headed back for the front. At any rate, he had his steel helmet on and his equipment was on his back. His stripes showed that he had been in the war three years and he had the Croix de Guerre with two palms and the Médaille Militaire. His interest in the game grew so high at last that he put down his pack and his helmet and joined the outfielders. The second or third ball hit came in his direction. He ran about in a short circle under the descending ball, and at the last moment he thrust both hands in front of his face. The ball came between them and hit him in the nose, knocking him down. His nose was a little bloody, but he was up in an instant, grinning. He left the field to pick up his trench hat and his equipment. The Americans shouted to him to come back. He understood the drift of their invitation, but he shook his head. C'est dangereux, he said, and started for the station to catch his train for the front. End of chapter 4